It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello all, and welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. Eric here. So over the last few weeks, I've recorded a couple of interviews that ended up running a little shorter than usual. So I combined them together into one episode presented to you today. First up, the murder of a little girl by her father at an amusement park in 1893. And the second, a synopsis of the 1892 Homestead Strike. So a couple of events that happened close to each other in history. Let's begin. I am very happy to introduce Kelly Sullivan to the show today. She is a Rhode Island-based author, journalist, and lecturer who specializes in both true crime and dramatic fiction. And she is here to talk about her book called Murder at Rocky Point Park, Tragedy in Rhode Island's Summer Paradise. Thanks so much for coming on, for being a guest today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how did you first come across this story? Um, I came across the story. I'm actually um, a journalist for the Charaho Times. I've been working there since 1998. And um, I got really interested. Um, when I first started there, I covered news. But then I met a lady whose uncle had been on the Titanic. And I became fascinated in covering historical subjects for the paper. Um, so I went to URI library to, um, go through some of the old newspapers from the 1800s and I got a headache like five minutes after I got there. So I printed out just one thing and I brought it home and I didn't even look at it until the next day. And then when I read it, it was about a little five-year-old girl being murdered at Rocky Point Park. And I was shocked by that because like everybody else in Rhode Island, we know Rocky Point. That's, that's the place where you go to have fun, not where people are murdered. I never heard about this. Nobody that I talked to had ever heard about it. 
And so I just decided to, to research it further. And I just became totally connected to this little girl whose horrible death was kind of just swept under the rug. Yeah, you, you mentioned in your book that you really developed a strong connection to Maggie Sheffield. Uh, that was the girl's name. Uh, why do you think that was? I had just become a mom for the first time, and I had a daughter who I loved more than, who I still love more than anything on this earth. And the thought of, and it especially hit me when, whenever I write about anybody, I, I go to their graves, I go to where they lived, I go to the, the, the scenes of the crimes, I get as close as I can to these people. And when I went and stood at her grave and saw that the grave of her father who killed her was just feet away, I, I couldn't stop crying because it's like, okay, she's six feet away from me right now. That's as close as I can ever get to her. And I wanted to like hold her and tell her that everything was going to be okay. I, I don't know. It was weird. It was, you know, having just become a mom and having a daughter of my own, I could not understand how this little girl's life was taken away. And, and the psychiatrist who knew that her father was planning to do this, nobody protected this kid. And I just couldn't get over that. And I would cry every single time I went to her grave. It's just like I wanted to adopt her. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally understand. Um, so let's let's start with what becomes the location of this terribly tragic murder. It happens at a place called Rocky Point Park, as you've said, as the title of your book states. And this was in Warwick, Rhode Island, right? Yes. Can you tell us more about the park and the, the local community and what it was like in the summer of, of 1893? Well, the park first started out, it was just a beautiful natural space where people with boats would stop to let everybody get out and, you know, walk around a little bit and have a picnic. Um, and then they started putting some simple rides there and eventually it became this huge amusement park. It was one of the most popular amusement parks on the East Coast. Um, they started taking, boats would go out just to bring people to the to the, the dock of Rocky Point. They were famous for their clam bakes. Pretty much any business around here when they would have their company party would have it at Rocky Point. Schools would have their field trips at Rocky Point. Churches would have their outings at Rocky Point. It was just the place to have fun and at, with the best food and the most exciting rides. And it was, it was just the place to go. It wasn't a place where anything bad happened. I mean, over the years, bad things did happen. There were fires, there was, there were accidents there, but as far as somebody there being murdered, that was, that was unheard of. What, what were some of the more popular attractions at the park? By that time they did have a lot. They had, um, they had a theater, they had an observatory. They had um, Ferris wheel, music concerts. It was big. It was thousands of people came through there every day. And just to explain to listeners, your, your book is not only about the murder of Maggie Sheffield, but, but you do write a great deal about the development of, of Rocky Point Park over the years. What do you think made the park so special for locals? Um, well, I think a lot of it had to do with um, the food, their, their shore dinners, where they would dig a hole in the beach and they would put in the lobsters and the corn and uh, 
from what I've read you could or and heard from people, like you could smell that cooking from miles away. People in Rhode Island, they love their seafood. And Rocky Point was the they would hire the best cooks, you know, people known for cooking shore dinners. Um, and they would they would serve thousands of people a day. So I think that was a really big draw. Um, they also had a lot of acts. Um, people would come and they would do plane shows or jumping out of planes or spinning planes around and people would come and see that. They would have acrobats. They would have trapeze artists, um, singers, actors. All the popular entertainers would come to Rocky Point to perform. And, and that was that was another big thing. And I think it was probably those two things more than the rides or games or anything else. It was probably the food and entertainment that just made it the, the, the place to be in the summer. So tell us about the Sheffield family, uh, Frank's background, uh, his, his marriage to Marianne, Maggie's mother. Okay. Um, Frank was a school teacher and a, a principal of a school. Um, Marianne actually died after giving birth to Maggie. Um, Marianne was from a prestigious family. Um, her father was involved with boats, with the sea trade. Um, Maggie Shortly after she was born, um, her her mother died, and I think that Frank Frank had some issues that he attributed to being hit in the head by the school bell. At one time, he was ringing the school bell, and allegedly it hit him in the head, and that's when he started. People that he worked with noticed that he wasn't acting right, but according to some other people during the trial, they said that Frank was having some mental mental issues where he had been prescribed narcotic drugs. Um, and that's why he was acting the way that he was acting. Um, some other people said that it was, he was acting the way he was acting because of a skin disease that had traveled to his brain. After he was put into the um, psychiatric hospital, they did determine there that he had a form of epilepsy, which could explain his he would wander off. They wouldn't know where he was. Um, and the psychiatrist, psychiatrist that he went to, the one who supposedly prescribed him these narcotics, told the family, don't let him wander off. And they didn't really take that too seriously. Even when he told his psychiatrist that he wanted to murder Maggie. I think, I think he was so depressed over losing his wife. And I think he probably blamed Maggie for the loss of his wife. Now suddenly he's got these two children to take care of. He had an older son, but he didn't talk about killing the son. He talked about killing Maggie because he didn't want Maggie to become a financial strain on anybody. So he had some definite issues. It was never determined whether it was from him being getting, getting hit in the head by a bell or um, being on cocaine or being on opium or a skin disease going to his brain. They never determined what, what was wrong with him, but... There, there was a time where he definitely started acting. Something wasn't right. He, he lost his job because he wasn't acting right. He would wander off and not know how he got where he was or how to get back home. They never determined what exactly the problem was, but th that didn't start until after his wife died. Right, right. So after his wife dies, Frank remarries a woman named Nancy Armedia in 1889. And they start having children together. Yes. Yes. And she was the one that the um, psychiatrist mostly talked to about um, his 
mental issues um, and she didn't seem to take it very seriously. So Maggie and her brother, the the children he has with his wife, Marianne, they're not living with with Frank and Nancy, right? No, they're living with, uh, one is living with the maternal grandparents and one is living with the paternal grandparents. And why do you think that was? I mean, honestly, and this is just my opinion, I think, uh, and I don't like, you know, putting my thoughts on him because this may not be, you know, the way it was at all, but the way that I look at it, I think Frank was very happy having a wife and children and this perfect family. And I think once the wife died, I feel like he blamed Maggie for that. And I think he, so his second wife was the, the, um, the daughter of his landlord, of the person that owned the house that they lived in. I think he just wanted to get married and start a new family and put the past behind him. And, and that would have meant casting off his children from his first wife to other people. And I could be totally wrong. Um, it just seems that when Maggie was killed, a whole lot of concern wasn't shown towards it. Um, from what I've read, her, her funeral only took minutes there was a lot more concern shown for Frank and poor Frank. Now Frank's life is over. You know, there was very little sympathy for Maggie. It seemed like all the sympathy was for Frank. Yeah. So where is the the Sheffield family living in 1893? Um, Pawkatuck at that time. Pawkatuck, Connecticut, just over the Rhode Island line. So tell us about the morning of of April 27th, 1893. What does Frank Sheffield do after he wakes up? Um, When he woke up, his wife, Nancy, was making breakfast. He told Nancy he was going to walk down the street to the store. She tried to get him to stay home to to eat his breakfast, and he said he wouldn't wouldn't be gone long. Um, He didn't come back, and she became... A little concerned because his psychiatrist had told her not to let him out of her sight. He had been wandering off and not remembering how he got there and knowing where he was. Um, She didn't seem seem to take this very seriously, but she was a little concerned when he didn't come back. Um, He didn't come back because he went to Attleboro. He went to um, his sister's house where his parents were staying for the week. They were there visiting. And he went there and told, told his family that he was there to pick up Maggie. They were a little concerned that he, was, that he didn't look right. They were concerned about how he looked. So they sent a telegram to his wife. She unfortunately didn't get it until the next day. Um, they didn't want him taken off with Maggie. So they convinced him to stay there, to have dinner with them, to spend the night, which he did, still determined that he was going to take Maggie. They could tell something was wrong, but they could get in touch with his wife. Um, and, and nobody seemed to keep a very good eye on him. Um, his brother-in-law was um, a minister. He went to preach a funeral sermon. Nobody really kept an eye on him. And when nobody was looking, he took Maggie and he left. Uh, Maggie even commented, right? Uh, why is my father staring at me so strangely? Yes, yes. And he was, after he took her to Rocky Point and he was very hungry, so he took her into the dinner hall. And even people who worked in the dinner hall later remarked that they were a little concerned by the way that he was staring at her. Right. Uh, You write that she was chatting incessantly and he was just staring. 
straight through her. Yeah, she was very excited about being at Rocky Point. She thought she was there to have a fun day with her father, and he was just staring at her blankly like he was in some kind of trance. Now, Rocky Point Park wasn't where Frank originally wanted to take her, right? Or at least that wasn't where he wanted to eat. He had another destination in mind for that. Um, Well, he wanted a, a shore dinner. So he asked on the boat when he said where he wanted to go, he wanted to go to this other place for a shore dinner and they told him that the boat did not go there. So that's why they ended up at Rocky Point. That's not where he wanted to go. So was Frank uh, acting differently than than normal? Uh, Is that what concerned his his family when he went to get her? Or or was this just the way he had acted since the accident with the bell? I don't don't think it was different. I, I think that's the way he was acting. And he was going to a psychiatrist and telling the psychiatrist some very disturbing things. I mean, he should have been institutionalized with the way that he was talking to the psychiatrist. Um, he, he couldn't work anymore because of just staring blankly and not knowing what he was doing. He just kept falling into these trances. He couldn't hold a job. He was saying things to a psychiatrist that were very concerning, that were putting other people in danger. Um, so this, this wasn't something that just happened that day. This had been going on for a while, and that's why his family had been told to keep a close eye on him. But, but picking her up out of, out of the blue... Right. He didn't do this regularly. This was very strange. No, um, but it was like him to wander off, to just wander off. They wouldn't know where he was. They would have to track him down. He'd say he didn't know how he got there. So for him to say, I'm walking to the store and his wife to say, okay, be back for breakfast was extremely irresponsible because every time he went somewhere, he wouldn't come back and he would end up lost. But he had never gone to... Um, his parents' house or his sister's house to to pick up Maggie ever. So they have their lunch at Rocky Point Park. Uh, What happens next? Yes, it's at the Shore Dinner Hall, which was one of the biggest draws of that park. They walked away from the Shore Dinner Hall and they were holding hands. And the only thing he remembered her saying to him was she said, can you take out your handkerchief and tie it into a doll for me? So I guess she wanted to carry around a doll, and he had probably done that at some point before because I don't know where she would have gotten that idea from. But she she wanted him to take out his handkerchief and tie it into a doll for her, and he didn't do it. Instead, he walked her down to some ledges down by the water and um, picked up a broken piece of the ledge and hit her over the head with it. He hit her one time, one time, right? Um, he hit her over the head and she she fell to the ground and he could see the pool of blood getting bigger and bigger. And he just walked out of the park. Um, some kids who were sitting nearby when he hit her and knocked her to the ground heard her scream. And the kids ran over there. And just as they got there, Frank was walking away and he just walked out of the park. And um, the kids went and got the manager of the park um, and they called for a doctor Um they carried her into the theater and she was still breathing, but she died before they could do anything for her. So Frank then turns himself in. Yeah. He walked up to some people in a parking lot and he said, um, I, I just, I just killed somebody. I need you need to contact the police. When he was asked why he did it, what did he say? 
Well, he didn't even realize who he killed at first. He didn't realize that he killed his daughter. He, he seemed to, to not know what was going on. He kept saying, I killed my little girl. But then he thought he was being accused of killing two people. He just, he seemed very, very confused. He didn't remember doing it. He didn't remember picking up the rock. He didn't remember hitting her with it. And then he, w- he was upset because he said, they're, they're accusing me of, of killing two people, but I only, I only killed Maggie. But he didn't remember killing Maggie. This isn't one of those crimes where it's it's temporary insanity, you know, where someone suddenly snaps. It it seemed to be premeditated. I mean, he went to get her, to take her to an isolated spot. And he had told his psychiatrist numerous times in the preceding months that he was going to kill her. It was definitely premeditated. And his family knew this. They knew that he was a danger to her, and nobody protected her. Didn't he say at some point that that he wanted to go and visit his son, Mason, his son from his first marriage? Mm -hmm. And and the fact that he, Frank, never talked about killing his son. He never talked about, oh, I hope he doesn't become a financial burden on anybody. It was always Maggie. It was always Maggie that had to be dead. And that's what makes me feel like he blamed her for his wife's death. Hmm. So an, an autopsy was performed on Maggie, right? Uh, yes, and she died um, of a, a fractured skull. And there was no question that Frank did this. There, there were eyewitnesses. But, but did Frank ever admit to, to killing her? Um, he, he didn't remember it. He, 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 which he claimed he didn't remember it, but he knew. He's like, I killed my... I mean... When he walked up to those men in the parking lot and said, I killed my daughter, nobody had even yet said anything to him about, here's this little girl, her head's been bashed in, did you do it? So he knew at that point he had killed her, but then he claimed he didn't remember anything about it. So I, I don't even know if he was telling the truth or if he, his mental issues prevented him from, well, he said, he said he didn't know what he did until he looked down and saw the blood. But somehow he knew, like if I, ha- if I had no knowledge of what had just happened and I looked and I saw somebody laying there in a pool of blood, I, I wouldn't immediately think I did it if I couldn't remember what just happened. But he, he took the blame for it immediately. He just didn't remember anything about it, supposedly. So he gets an attorney. Uh, Lewis was his name. What was the, the strategy in defending Frank? Um, with a lot of sympathy, just like everybody else, they blamed the him getting um, hit in the head with the school bell. They blamed the skin disease that had gone to his brain. Um, they blamed the cocaine. They blamed the opium. Um, there didn't seem to be any reason where he should have to take responsibility for what he did because he had all of these issues. And it, it never even came into play that he told the psychiatrist he was going to kill her. There was just so much sympathy for him from all sides. And they determined him to be not in his right mind when it happened. So he wasn't free to go back out into society, but he also was not imprisoned. So how is, is Frank reacting in the courtroom to everything going on around him? Again, like he's not all there. Like he's not, does, doesn't remember things, doesn't understand things. Either he was putting on an act, 
I mean, when you when you kill somebody and your lawyer is gonna gonna plead insanity or temporary insanity, you got to act the part, I guess. So I don't know if he was acting the part or so he really did have mental issues that were that deep that he was just in a constant state of confusion. So Nancy is called to the stand and she testifies about her husband's recent erratic behavior. Yeah, about him about him wandering off. Yeah. Well, she definitely knew that something was going on with him um mentally. Um we don't really know that much about Nancy. So I can't really say what her mindset was or how she felt about these children or if she even knew these children, um, why she didn't take this seriously. I mean, her husband needed help. I think beyond going to a psychiatrist, it, it, I don't know. It just seems like nobody took anything about this whole situation seriously. When your husband wanders off and you don't know where he is and you know he has mental health issues and he tells you, I'm just going to walk down to the store, you don't just say okay and let him go. The doctor Frank had been seeing, uh, John Morgan was his name, he testified that Frank had told him that he had had an urge to kill Maggie, but that didn't seem to sway the jury, did it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, he told them uh, how Frank was very afraid because he wasn't able to hold a job. Um, he was he was concerned that he couldn't provide for his children, that his children's two sets of grandparents were were providing for them. And he told his doctor that he actually had he had such a strong impulse to kill Maggie, to keep her from being a financial burden, that it was getting very, very hard to control himself. And it's at that point that you put somebody in an institution. You don't send him back home and tell his wife, keep an eye on him. And then he's walking to the store and his wife says, okay, come right back. All of these people are guilty. Uh, Dr. Morgan also said on the stand that Frank had attempted suicide. Do you think that that was true? Probably because I don't think he had any reason to lie. I, but, but he tried to commit suicide with laudanum. We don't know how he obtained that. We don't know if that's just another thing that Morgan, it seemed like Morgan had him on a whole a whole string of drugs. That And, and doing research for this book, I actually um, joined an online group for um, recovering drug addicts. And I told them that I was an author and that I was working on a book where this man was possibly under the effects of cocaine, possibly under the effects of opium. And I, and I wanted to understand how a person would act taking this drug or taking that drug. And these people were very, very helpful. And from the information that they gave me, it sounded as if he might have been taking several drugs that were not reacting to each other very well. So how does the trial conclude? What's the verdict? Uh, the, the, well, the verdict was that he was not in his right mind when he killed her. He was guilty of killing her, but he was not in his right mind. So he was put in the um, mental hospital instead of in prison. Was that the Rhode Island State Hospital for the insane? Yes. And how does he do there? How long does he live? We don't know how he did there in terms of how he acted, um, if he recovered from his trances or stuff like that. Um, but he died there in 1901. 
believe it was tuberculosis. Yeah, I believe his death certificate said tuberculosis and um, um, epilepsy. So what happened to Rocky Point Park? Is it still there? Well, it's still there, but it's, um, they eventually, they sold all the rides. So the rides are like in different parks all over America now. It, it just sort of laid in ruin for a while until they, they auctioned everything off. And they cleaned everything up. It's now opened up and it's, it's come full circle. It's now just this natural habitat where people go for picnics and go to walk around and, um, it's beautiful, which is what it started out as before it got all the rides and all the entertainment and everything. Now it's just beautiful. It's just plants and grass and the water. And, um, they, they hold different events up there now. I think they hold some food truck events and some, some other things, but it's, yeah, it's still Rocky Point Park, but it's just not like a playground anymore. It's back to how it was originally with just, just beautiful, a beautiful piece of nature, really. There's still some remnants there. You can see, you know, the remnants of like um, the old observatory and um, I think it was like a, a skyline thing or something. You can still see there's, they left some parts of the rides there just to be sort of like historical mementos of what used to be there. It's really, really cool to go walk around. Wow, cool. So for people who want to learn more about you, your books, where can we point them? Um, my Facebook page is Kelly J. Sullivan, colon, The Works. And um, I have hundreds and hundreds. I'm, I'm a um, historical columnist, so I do mostly true crime, but I do a lot of um, historical columns about Rhode Island um, for um, the towns of Johnston, Cranston, Warwick, Hopkinton, Charlestown, Richmond. I work for um, the Johnston Sunrise, the Warwick Beacon, um, the Cranston Herald, the Cheraho Times. My columns are in all of those papers. That my Facebook page also, um, I have 14 books, um, true crime, history, and dramatic novels. Most of my novels are also historical. But yeah, that, so that, that site will pretty much tell you anything you want to know, that page. So I've done some recent work on my most notorious website. And one of the things that I did was categorize episodes by location, uh, break them down by state. And there were a few states that I was surprised that I had missed, including Rhode Island. So you are the first. Oh, wow. As you've said, the murder of Maggie Sheffield was pretty much forgotten about until you wrote your book. But are there any other big name crime cases that come to mind? Infamous Rhode Island cases? Um, the one that, as far as historical, like older going back, I would probably say the Laura Register murder, where a, a young woman who was supposed to be going shopping for her wedding gown um, never showed up back at home and they found her in the Jewish cemetery dead. And it's that's never been solved. So, and most people have probably never heard about that, but to me, that's the big one. Um, the one that most people have heard about that um, is connected to Rhode, Rhode Island is a book that I, I hope to do um, soon. Um, and it's the Cam Lyman murder. And she was um, a millionaire who lived here in Hopkinton. She went missing and they found her years later in her septic system. And that murder has never been solved. 
Wow. What what year did that happen? Oh, uh, it wasn't that. It was probably the 1990s. I don't. I have a whole entire box of information. I don't have that right here. Um, I work on so many true crime things throughout the day that I just can't keep these dates straight in my head. Not a but, problem. Yeah. Um, but it was it it was a more modern crime. It wasn't back in the 1800s. It was was not more than a couple of decades ago. Got it. Got it. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Kelly Sullivan discussing her book, Murder at Rocky Point Park, Tragedy in Rhode Island's Summer Paradise. Back after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest. Uh, this is the second time he has been here, Paul Cahan. On his first visit to the show, he talked about the fabled penal institution, Eastern State Penitentiary, and he has very graciously agreed to return, this time to chat about the Homestead Strike. His book is called The Homestead Strike, Labor, Violence, and American History. Thanks so much for coming back on. Sure. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, as I said to you on offline, it's it's unusual that I get a chance to talk about this event, and I think it has some really important features that are worth revisiting periodically. So I'm glad that I have a chance to talk about it. Yeah. So before we get into the strike itself, I'd love it if you could tell us about Andrew Carnegie and how he created his steel empire. Sure. So there were two antagonists, I guess you would say, of the Homestead Strike. One is Andrew Carnegie, and the other is Henry Clay Frick, who in many ways are quite similar, and in many ways are very, very different. And understanding those two individuals, I think, is a key to understanding how and why the events of uh, July 6th, 1892 played out. Carnegie, of course, is one of these towering figures of American history. Many people, if they know even just a little bit of U.S. history, have heard the name Andrew Carnegie. 
And that was certainly by design. Uh, Carnegie was a master at public relations and took his reputation very, very seriously. And it, it was quite important to him to be perceived uh, in a positive light. So there's a lot of myth-making that Carnegie engages in. Uh, he had been born in Scotland. The family comes to the United States right at the moment in our history when the Industrial Revolution is in many ways transforming American life and creating and speeding up American life. I mean, you start getting the growth of railroads and, you know, steel shipping. And, uh, you know, at the heart of this is, of course, iron and steel. And Carnegie manages to be at the right place at the right time uh, in several key respects. He, he's in the railroad industry. That's really where he gets to start. And he recognizes that almost every element of the, of, of the trains uh, and the rails they run on are made of steel. And so he kind of puts a marker down on that and ends up moving into that direction uh, and largely becoming the most important player in the steel industry. And of course, he styles himself as, you know, a, a Horatio Alger figure. You know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Uh, ignore the fact that, you know, a lot of my wealth has to do with government contracts and playing the political game. You know, I was just very thrifty and worked hard. And he wants to be known as the millionaire socialist, you know. And it's, it's sort of an interesting course of his career. And it's one of the reasons why after the Homestead strike, uh, where Carnegie's public image is really heavily damaged by what happens, um, that he sets about giving away a large portion of his, his money. You know, Carnegie is a, is a pacifist, but of course he, he doesn't scruple to selling the War Department steel to make ships and guns and, and you know, artillery shells. And he doesn't see any, you know, sort of hypocrisy at work there. So he's, he lives in a world of his own creation. He is the hero of his story, and he is very, very disturbed when other people don't quite see it that way. By contrast, Henry Clay Frick uh, gets his start in the coal industry, particularly coke, which is a, a form of coal that is, uh, has a very high carbon content, so it burns very, very hot. And this is a necessary component of steel making. You have to heat your blast furnaces very, very high to burn off impurities in order to create steel. And so Frick it is producing a necessary component to Andrew Carnegie's product. And so it sort of becomes almost inevitable that these two men would end up in business together, uh, bringing together their disparate interests into a vertically integrated organization. And so that's what happens. Um, and they, they end up, Carnegie had a number of companies. They begin sort of merging them into a single company that will eventually become what, what will later become U.S. Steel. And they begin locking in all of the different components of creating steel, the raw materials, uh, the coal, all of that kind of stuff. Henry Clay Frick, by contrast, 
does not care what anyone thinks of him. His only concern is making a profit. And he is an incredibly hard-charging, aggressive businessman. On some level, he's exactly like Carnegie, except that Carnegie prefers to wear a mask and be celebrated as the millionaire socialist, whereas Henry Clay Frick does not care. And so as a result, when we get to the lead up to the Homestead strike, it's not at all surprising to me that Carnegie basically turns the whole thing over to Frick and says, handle it, and then goes off to Scotland. And he does this because he knows what's going to happen at the Homestead plant, and he knows that it's not going to go well, and he suspects that whoever is in charge is going to take a black eye in the press, and he certainly doesn't want it to be him. Uh, And the challenge that these guys face at Homestead, they had bought the Homestead work in the 1880s. And the Homestead Works was a pre-existing steel plant that had a a pre-existing union um, that was affiliated with the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. Uh, When Carnegie bought it, basically they thought they were going to crush the union. When the union's contract comes up in 1889, the union is basically able to get Carnegie's man to back down and and form a contract and sign a contract that in many respects is is very fair, both to the company and to the workers. This leaves Carnegie and Frick seething, and they immediately begin planning for when that contract will be renegotiated in the summer of 1892. And it is inevitable that there was going to be a showdown. Uh, The moves that Carnegie and Frick make, the terms of the demands that they present, to the uh, union, the, the union just couldn't accept it. It would have been starvation wages. It would have been negotiating in the dead of winter when people were hungry. Whereas, you know, in the summer, you know, if someone's out of work for a few months, it's not any big deal. They don't have to buy coal to heat their houses. Carnegie and Frick want to move the, the contract end date to the winter. They want to do it based on, they want to do pay based on the average of steel that's been produced, but taking those numbers from periods when steel production is quite low, it's kind of a seasonal industry. I mean, they they know that the union is not going to be able to agree to this. Rather than negotiate in good faith, once the union rejects their proposal, uh, Carnegie and Frick say, all right, well, that's it. Then we're done. And they move to lock the workers out of the plant. Um, the Carnegie strike is known as a strike, but it's actually, properly speaking, a lockout, which is when management locks out, literally, its workers from the place of their employment and shuts it down. And this, too, had been planned. Carnegie was a relentless uh, innovator. He was always replacing his production facilities with the best and the brightest, the newest and the greatest. And so knowing that this negotiation was coming up and knowing that, you know, the union was not going to accept it. He uh, said, all right, well, you know, we'll use this as an interval for updating the uh, plant. He had his brother in Europe scouting out replacement laborers, uh, Eastern Europeans in particular, who could be imported into the United States, um, basically as scab laborers. So who's negotiating for the AA at this point? And what is the union hoping for? 
And what are working conditions like in the plant? Well, so a contemporary described Pittsburgh and Homestead is just outside of Pittsburgh as hell with the lid off. I mean, you could see the blast furnaces from miles. It's extremely hot. Um, workers would go to work and periodically would have to wring out their shoes, but just from the amount of sweat that was in their clothing. Um, it was incredibly dangerous work. You know, you're constantly surrounded by molten metal going everywhere. In fact, one of Carnegie's top managers in the 1870s or the 1880s was actually killed when molten uh, metal was poured on top of him accidentally. You know, it's it's it, life in these in these mills is nasty, brutish, and short. And you're working twelve-hour shifts, except at the end of a two-week period, you work a full twenty-four hours when your shift goes from the day shift to the night shift. Um, and you can imagine standing in front of a blast furnace for twelve hours, let alone standing in front of a blast furnace for for twenty-four hours. And it was simply a matter of people were replaceable. There's no OSHA. There's no factory inspections. There's no minimum wage. So conditions were pretty awful. And they were awful by design. You know, it would have cost money to do things differently. It would have cost money to improve conditions. It would have cost money to have three eight-hour shifts versus two 12-hour shifts. This was not a, a, any kind of life that anyone would want. And, you know, quite frankly, Carnegie and Frick didn't care. I mean, I, I think Carnegie, I, Frick understood, I think, what, what the reality was. Carnegie lived in this world of his own creation where, you know, you were going to work 14 or 12 or 14 hours a day in the iron mill. And then you were going to go to his library and read books and pull yourself up by your bootstraps by reading Plato or some nonsense like that. I mean, it was just, it was just awful. And, you know, Pittsburgh itself, you know, you have these blast furnaces that are spewing smoke. So everything is dark and dingy and you're breathing in coal dust. I mean, well into the 1940s and 1950s, Catholic school kids would go to school in the morning and then go home for lunch to change their shirt because the amount of coal dust in the atmosphere stained their white shirts black. So they had to have two shirts available for them. It is really quite shocking. And the houses themselves were these ramshackle affairs. You know, you don't have sidewalks. You have just these muddy paths. So everything is dirty and cold and grimy and wet. And you're going to work next to this blast furnace where there is a a chance you're not going to come home. And if you if they if you die on the job, you know your your boss is going to show up at the house because it's owned by the company and throw your wife and kids out after a few days or a week. So there's a lot of it that's an incredibly shockingly negative uh, way to live. Um, you know, it's interesting that one of the first things that Carnegie did was move out of Pittsburgh. He moved to New York to get away from these kinds of conditions. Um, Frick, who was made of sterner stuff and believed, you know, that he needed to be close to this stuff, stayed. But he wasn't living in Homestead. He was living in downtown Pittsburgh. Actually, not far from where um, Mr. Rogers lived, interestingly enough. 
many, many decades later. So conditions were pretty awful. And the workers got together and formed the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers. And, and crucially, it's important to recognize that this was a very, very conservative union that saw itself really as in partnership with management. They wanted management to succeed. They wanted the company to do well. They felt like it was as much their responsibility to keep the workers in line as it was to ensure that workers were well paid and, and had some you know modest protections. So they didn't see themselves exactly as antagonistic. They're later painted as wild-eyed radical anarchists or socialists or something, in large part because of Alexander Berkman's actions. But it's a very conservative organization that's not seeking to overthrow the capitalist system. It's really just asking for a couple of additional table scraps. Uh, and ultimately, that is just a bridge too far for uh, Carnegie and Frick. And like I said, I mean, they had been planning from the moment that the contract had been signed in July of 1889 to provoke a confrontation with the uh, union and thereby have a, a, a reason to lock them out and replace the workers. So who were the, the, the leaders of the union? I mean, John McLucky is one of them. Um, Hugh O'Donnell is another. And, you know, they end up really losing their careers to this strike. I mean, they're blacklisted following the strike and following the events at Homestead. And, and uh, one of them, I can't remember if it's O'Donnell or McLucky, ends up down in Mexico, of all places, um, because he's basically persona non grata uh, and can't find work. So Frick really fortifies the mill. He, he creates a, a fortress. Yes. So once they... Once they know that this is going to happen, that there's going to be a lockout, Frick actually surrounds the plant with a fence. And it's something like eight or nine feet tall. And it's actually got holes for putting rifles through. I mean, the, the, the workers dub it Fort Frick. And it's, um, it sends a message. And, you know, the message is most definitely... We are expecting violence. And of course, throughout this conflict, you know, the union representatives go out of their way to say, look, you know, we're not, we think we can settle this peacefully. We're not really interested in conflict. Again, it's a very conservative union. They're not looking, you know, to burn the place down. But everything about what Frick does is calculated to provoke a fight. And ultimately, he gets the fight that he wants when the workers ultimately take control of the plant. They say, we are merely protecting what is ours. And I think it's important to recognize that what these guys are saying, it's a totally different understanding of work and labor 
than exists today. I mean, we really live in a sort of post-neoliberal world where you're basically a cog in a machine and, you know, you're lucky if your employer doesn't step over your carcass getting to work. But in this period, there was another way of thinking about these things. You know, workers believed there were still remnants of the old uh, trade system. You know, in the 18th century, workers had skills that defined them. You know, they were their shoemakers or they were bookbinders or whatever. And, and they, they owned their job in some ways. They had gone through an apprenticeship. They had, they, they had, you know, I hate the term skilled labor, but they were skilled labor. They owned their job in some respect. They were not simply cogs in a machine. And that was totally antithetical to the, the new world that was being created in this second industrial revolution at the end of the 19th century. Uh, I mean, you know, they were industrialists were embracing um, the division of labor as a way to improve the efficiency and the output of workers. Unfortunately for the steel industry, it wasn't really possible to do that in the way that, you know, for instance, Adam Smith talked about in the pin making industry, where you have one person making the stalk of the pin and one person making the head of the pin and one person attaching them and one person putting them on a card. That just, it didn't work. Um, you know, it still required a fairly diverse set of skills and knowledge to properly do this. So on the one hand, uh, Carnegie and Frick had to live with workers whose skills gave made them more valuable than your average factory laborer. On the other hand, they didn't want to pay the premium for that education and experience that the workers were demanding. And they were trying to kill this notion that you owned your job. You know, they really wanted to reduce these guys to interchangeable cogs in a wheel. And on some level, you can understand the homestead strike as a pushback against that that ultimately fails. So it's it's a clash of interests, but it's also a clash of two very different ways of understanding what work is and, and what employment is and how do workers fit into the broader scheme of the company and the corporation, if that makes sense. We will return in just a moment. And we are back again. So, so strikers basically take over the town and tensions escalate. Yeah, I mean, Frick had sent a very clear message that this was not a friendly set of activities and that he expected violence. And I think on some level he wanted violence because he could use that as a justification for breaking the union and replacing the union with new workers who didn't have this long history of uh, being members of the AAISW, who didn't have expectations, you know, and, and so, you know, I think he was, I wouldn't say he was joyed that they, you know, basically seized the factory, but he wasn't surprised. And he certainly, you know, he expected it and he had plans for it. And those plans involved hiring the Pinkerton Private Detective Agency, which was essentially by this period, your strike breakers for hire. They would dragoon a bunch of 
unemployed guys from Philadelphia, New York, Cleveland, wherever. They toss them a uniform, they toss them a badge, they toss them a gun, and they would send them down and basically break skulls. And that to me is, is one of the more despicable aspects of this event is that you have the have little, the have nothings being used to break the union of the have littles. You know, this is not what these guys signed up for. They didn't sign up for being put on a barge and, and, and sent down the Monongahela River and, and having to run up a gauntlet while being shot at and then being almost set on fire when the, the, the striking workers basically try to set the barge on fire. I mean, it's a nightmare. You know, there were any number of ways that this could have gone. You know, after the Pinkertons get repulsed, they're finally allowed to land after they've been disarmed. They, they have to run a gauntlet through the town. But then more or less, they're, 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 they're sent back to Pittsburgh. You know, they're returned to Frick, essentially. And it's at that point that, that Frick and Carnegie lean on the governor to bring in the heavy guns. And so the second group to show up is the state militia. And the commander of the state militia makes it very clear to the strikers when he arrives. See, the strikers think, oh, good, the state militia's coming. He's going to see it our way or at least be an impartial broker. You know, he's going to protect us from guys like Frick sending in their own personal armies. And the first thing he does is say, nope, I am here to give control of these steelworks back to Carnegie and Frick. So it's it's another situation where the government has put its hand on the scales, its finger on the scales, on behalf of big business. And that is the continuing theme of the history of labor relations in the United States, really until the New Deal. And the New Deal does change that slightly, but only very briefly. From the time that the Roosevelt administration passes uh, the National Labor Relations Act and a few other pieces of legislation to the point where Reagan fires the air traffic controllers in 81. It's 35 years, 40 years, not 45 years, I guess. I mean, it's, if you look at the history of labor in this country, it is a history of the state being very, very hostile to labor and using the power of the state to back up industry at the expense of working people. So was Frick hoping to galvanize this force of Pinkertons to man the steel mill? He was never going to man it with the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were strictly there to secure control. The idea was that what would happen next was they would protect the plant so that the, the new workers, the scabs, could replace the striking workers. And that is not exactly what happened. I mean, obviously the workers get the... Uh, Pinkertons get repulsed. The workers remain in control of the works until the state militia comes. They're the ones who take control of it. They are the ones who hand control of it back over to uh, Frick. And they are the ones who protect the newly arrived workers. The Pinkertons were never going to be a working force. The Pinkertons were always going to be a private police force. And the Pinkertons walked into this with really no idea about what was going to happen. What side started shooting first, and what were the casualties? That's an incredibly difficult question to answer. No one is quite sure whether the Pinkertons fired first or whether the Strikers fired first. 
Um, there are conflicting accounts. And again, everyone is scared. Everyone's got massive amounts of adrenaline pumping through. Uh, the Pinkertons are, I mean, imagine yourself, you're on one of these barges and you float up to this very significant incline at the pier. Like you would get off the pier and then you have to run up this hill. And there are all kinds of obstructions on that hill with unfriendly faces holding guns behind them. And if you somehow made it up the hill, you know, you've got even more people at the top of this hill and they're, they've got their backs up against the works. I mean, it's, it's frightening. And of course, from the alternative perspective, you know, you've got these workers who maybe have guns, but are showing up maybe with pots and pans and baseball bats and whatever they can grab to repel this invasion. And so there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of adrenaline. There's a lot of no one's quite sure what's going to happen. You know, the Pinkertons try to land. The, the strikers' representatives try to say, look, this is not a good idea. You don't want to do this. They do it anyway. A shot is fired, and then all hell breaks loose. I don't think that either the strikers or the Pinkertons wanted there to be violence. You know, but the it's what happens when an immovable force meets an, an immovable object. It's chaos. It's an explosion, and that's what happens. Carnegie and Frick knew there was going to be violence. They didn't want there to be violence, but they had to know there was going to be violence. They knew that the workers weren't going to just surrender when this force of Pinkertons came. But, you know, if they negotiated with the workers, that was going to set a precedent, and they were going to be exactly where they were in 1889. So it's an unfortunate story, and, and I think that, you know, I, look, I have no love for the Pinkertons, but, you know, it was once described as a fight between the have-littles and the have-nothings. And in that respect, I think, it's a pretty good description that Carnegie and Frick basically manipulated two groups of people who had almost nothing to fight to the death in order to preserve their status and wealth. How, how long did this battle last? How, how quickly did the Pinkerton surrender? And can you talk about this gauntlet that they were forced to, to walk through? Yeah, so the battle itself only t it takes a few hours. You know, there's a couple of attempts to land the Pinkertons. Every time they do, they are repulsed. And then, you know, the strikers start coming up with these harebrained ideas. There was a, a, a track down to the pier. And so what they decide to do is they're going to fill this basically railroad cart with a bunch of flaming material. And what they hope is it'll go down the hill straight onto the pier and hit one of the barges and set the barges on fire. And they're going to burn these guys alive. I mean, it's it's a nightmare. Fortunately for the, the Pinkertons, from a humanitarian perspective, fortunately, the cart ends up stopping on the rails when it gets to the pier and it just, you know, burns. But once the, you know, once it becomes clear that the Pinkertons have nowhere to go, you know, they're either going to get shot on these barges or drowned jumping into the water they surrender and they're marched up this hill with the with the workers and their families jeering them and that you know it's an important thing too it's not just men who work in 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 the carnegie in the homestead works it's their wives it's their children i mean these are people who are see the pinkertons rightly as a threat to their livelihoods and their lives and they're just letting their frustration 
run wild against these men, beating them, spitting on them, kicking them, cursing them. So, you know, there's there's a fair amount of violence and and aggression that gets let out on these Pinkertons. And they're finally taken to a, a central point in the uh, in the town, the local opera, where they can kind of be connected and actually collected and then kind of protected from the mob um, and then put on trains and sent back to Pittsburgh. But it's it's not pretty. And again, you know, I, I, I think you can understand these people shot at you and you were shooting at them and, and they were coming to take something from you. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. I do have a lot of sympathy and empathy for the men they dragooned into being Pinkerton agents who I don't think really understood what they were being asked to do. You know, they were told they were, they were going to go protect this factory. You know, they were going to be basically night watchmen. They were not expecting uh, to be confronted by an angry, aggressive, and armed mob. Uh, people died in this battle, right? Some drowned. There were various ways that people died, I know. Uh, there were. Yeah, there were several. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of ways to die at the homestead. Imbroglio. So at the point where they surrender and they are put back on trains and sent away, are strikers declaring victory? Yeah, I mean, they see themselves as having won the day. They repulsed Frick's, you know, goons, essentially. Um, they send them back to Pittsburgh. I mean, it was, it was an incredible achievement. And I think they thought, okay. You know, Frick, Frick and Carnegie have got to under, come to the table and understand this, this can't happen again. And in fact, in, in the PR battle that follows this, Americans were, American newspapers were widely divided about this. Some took Frick and Carnegie's side, arguing the private property was inviolate and the strikers were in the wrong and they should have been shot. Uh, and then there were others who said, hey, look, Carnegie and Frick didn't negotiate in good faith. And even if they did, the appropriate response is not sending a privately armed force to expel people by, by force. You know, there are other avenues for dealing with these kinds of things. And it was not entirely clear who would win the PR battle. And that really worried Carnegie. I mean, again, it was crucial to his self-identity to be seen as the good guy, to be seen as the hero to be seen as, you know, the working man's friend, even though he obviously was not. And what really turns the tide in the PR battle, and I think, you know, really loses the ultimate, you know, the strikers win the battle, but they lose the war. They lose the war in large part because of Alexander Berkman, who is a Russian-born anarchist who is the part-time lover of Emma Goldman. And he and Goldman are just astonished and, and enraged by Frick and Carnegie's actions. And so they decide they're going to, to go do something about this, that they're going to intervene on the side of the workers. And, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the most comical 
thing that you can imagine. At one point, they don't have any money, of course. Um, Emma Goldman decides that she's going to go into prostitution as a way of earning the money they are going to need to get to Pittsburgh from New York and to get a weapon and do all this stuff. So she, she dresses herself up. She, she goes out in the corner and she actually picks up a guy who is like, you are clearly not a hooker. I am going to pay you money to go home. Like, it's just mind blowing to me. She doesn't succeed at, at, at prostitution, which is hilarious. But anyway, they get this money together and they go buy Berkman a suit and a gun, a, a little mini gun. I think it was a Derringer. I may be mistaken on that. So they go buy this gun and they decide, all right, we're going to go to Pittsburgh and I'm going to kill Henry Clay Frick. And that's going to be my big blow on behalf of the workers. So they go to Pittsburgh and Berkman shows up at Frick's office and sits in the outside room, you know, constantly asking, can I see Mr. Frick? Can I see Mr. Frick? Can I see Mr. Frick? And they don't let him in. So finally, when someone is going in for an appointment, Berkman bursts through the door and, and Frick is talking with this other guy and Berkman pulls out his gun and sh shoots Frick and not mortally wounding him. I mean, he hits him, but he doesn't mortally wound him. So Frick jumps up and grabs him and they're tussling and, and Berkman loses the gun. So he gets a knife and he decides he's going to stab Frick. So he does, he stabs Frick, but again, it's a very superficial wound and they actually end up subduing him. Some work, some clerks in another office come over, they hit Berkman over the head. You know, Frick is like, I want to see this guy. They, they grab him by the hair, they show him to him and they drag him out of the office. The guy that Berkman had been, or that Frick had been meeting with actually passes out from just vicariously being part of this. Berkman ends up getting 10 years in the Western State Penitentiary. They, they dress Frick's wounds. He sends Carnegie a telegram. He's like, yeah, this guy tried to kill me, but it's no big deal. I'm back at work. And that's the moment where public perception changes for two reasons. First, Frick is a tough guy and Americans love it, the tough guy. And second of all, it seems like the workers are members of this, are, are, are anarchists. Why is this anarchist coming down here to kill Frick? Is he involved in the union? And so it becomes very easy to paint the members of the union as anarchists or as some other kind of undesirable ideology. And that's the moment where public opinion turns and turns decisively against the strikers. That is the moment where they lose the war. And ultimately, this just gives fuel to the more conservative forces and the state government and the federal government, like, don't back down. And ultimately, Carnegie and Frick are able to work, wait the strikers out. And as the weather starts getting colder, it starts becoming a lot harder to not go back to work. And so a lot of the strikers kind of start making their way back to their jobs, which for which they're now paid considerably less. Uh, for the leaders of the strike, for the people that, guys like McLucky, they don't have jobs, and they're never going to have jobs. They are never going to work in the steel industry again. And it's it, it's a it's a really chilling sort of thing. Uh, it demonstrates what happens when a an individual or a group of individuals controls that much of a key industry. They have the wealth and political power to basically enforce their will in ways that crush average 
working human beings uh, and, and do so out of spite. It's interesting because if you look, you will find that it's very difficult to find a biography of Henry Clay Frick. There's, there's one that's kind of like a, a laudatory kind of thing. Uh, and that's because his daughter, to whom he bequeathed his wealth, threatened to sue anyone who wrote a biography of Henry Clay Frick. I don't know how she would have done that, but she, whether she won or lost in court, it wouldn't matter. She would have drained your wealth in, in, in lawyer's fees well before it got there. And she lived to like 1980. So, you know, she lived years, decades, nearly a century after these events and prevented people from really investigating uh, Henry Clay Frick, which again is exactly what he would have wanted. I mean, he didn't care what people thought of him. Carnegie's Im image takes a real beating. And to a certain extent, that becomes the impetus behind a lot of his philanthropy is uh, the beating that his impression, that his, his self-image takes. What was their relationship like over the course of their lives? It, it certainly worked well in, in tough situations. It was, it was like a good cop, bad cop dynamic, right? They did, except that they have a falling out. And ultimately, uh, Les Sandiford, who wrote a book about the two of them, titled it, I'll See You in Hell. Which is when Carnegie tried to uh, make amends with Frick late in life. Frick told him, I'll see you in hell. You know, I'm not, we're not doing that. Um, you know, I think that given the fact that Carnegie was who he was and Frick was who he was, a break in their relationship was almost inevitable. They did work well together, but there can be only one boss. And ultimately, I think they were also fated to have a falling out, which is ultimately what happened. Fascinating. So for people who want to connect with you uh, to check out your books, you have a website? Absolutely. It's www.paulkahan.com. And when you go, and this is how... We're going to, the next book, hopefully, we'll talk about. They can read all about my biography of Simon Cameron, Lincoln's scandalous Secretary of War, who got himself involved in a sex scandal in his 70s. Gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Interesting guy. It was the trial of the century. So I hope you'll have a chance to ask me all about that at some future time. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to have you back for that. Well, thanks again. Sure, anytime. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Again, I have been speaking to Paul Cahan. His book is called The Homestead Strike, Labor, Violence, and American History. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Reminis, and have a safe tomorrow. Tomorrow.